Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 756. Happy New Year, everyone. Who uh, Richard's with me, Richard from the UK. I haven't talked to you in forever, Rich, so it's great to be back talking again. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. So uh, things are going well here. Rich has been flooding you with interviews from Qatar. There's still more to come from there. I've got an interview that I want to add on to a show. Might be a special. Um, but the idea here, guys, is that we're working hard behind the scenes. And to be honest, uh, it's going to take for us to go places. We need to rethink how we do and structure things. So with that, I am putting out a call to anyone in the U.S. who would like to be a Moto America beat reporter for Motopod, if you will. Uh, we're looking for someone in the U.S. who could attend at least a round uh, of the Moto America series, take a recorder, go get some pit, uh, pit interviews. We'll get you media credentials to go in, and you will be able to do Moto. You'll cover Moto America. I will sit in as the co-host, uh, add color to what's going on, and but it's your beat. You're going to know all the inside information and do that so if you are interested in being part of the motopod team covering moto america please do so by emailing motopod at motopodcast.com and please put in the subject line moto america host and then uh, rich and i will get back to you see what's what we can happen and we will go from there with that if you guys could rich did a great job getting some interviews those are don't come cheap if you could subscribe to the show, that'd be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps. Helps Rich get to the track. Helps me get to the track. Helps us get these interviews that I hopefully you all are enjoying as well. But if you can't uh, make a donation, that we understand. I get it. But if you could, just please go to your podcast player where you get the podcast from. Give us a like. Give us a comment. Some feedbacks there. And that'll switch the algorithm. Put us back on top. There's a lot of motor motorcycling podcasts out there. And we want to try to be the best fan-based podcast possible and with that mr rich i want to think we should probably get on to news because i mean you and i we haven't talked about anything uh it's been a long time related it's a long time you know we've been listening to yep. interviews and whatnot so uh we'll let's just whip through what's going on in the world of moto gp well it is launch season so everyone is re releasing their new bikes uh, grassini released their new bikes which are 2020 three Ducatis. Um, if you could spot the difference in the two pictures that was posted on Twitter by Matt Oxley, congratulations. I think David Emmett maybe might have put it out there too. Uh, pretty much the only thing I noticed was there's a, the cover on the disc brake was missing on the front and the rear rear uh, Stegosaurus teeth are different on the back. Other than that, that is the exact same thing other than maybe the numbers on the motorcycle. Uh, I'm sort of excited about just seasons coming along. We're getting close to testing. 
I want to see what happens, you know, with Marquez on the bike. I think a lot of people, that's the big story there. But there was nothing I knew that I don't think that we didn't know already. Rich, did you find any tidbit in Gersini's launch that would that tickled your fancy? Uh, I'm not a big fan of these sort of glitzy launch type dudes. I can't bring myself to kind of watch them online particularly. I'm interested to see the the pictures of the bikes and stuff, but it's all fairly kind of common year to year how they present that sort of stuff. I mean, the takeaway for the Grassini launch for me, Jim, was that the bikes look identical in terms of sponsorship and colour scheme to last year. Now, that's not to say things don't change when they roll them out at round one in Qatar, but I think we were both expecting a lot more kind of Red Bull influence to come along with Mark Marquez. And whilst both he and brother Alex have the personal sponsorship of Red Bull very much prevalent or crash helmets and stuff like that. There doesn't appear to be much coming on the bikes themselves. But as I said, that might well change. But it was a little bit surprising, not in a disappointing way, just as an observation that not a huge amount has changed. Whereas you might have thought with Marcus coming, there would be a stampede of people looking to get their logos and copyright and all the rest of it on the bikes. So that was a surprise to me, Jim. I don't know about for you. Yeah, I I don't know. If he would have went to a different factory team, would the bigger people have come to play? I, I don't know. That's a question that I can't answer. I really thought there was going to be at least a splash of Red Bull at the bottom of a fairing somewhere on the bike. It didn't because didn't Red Bull kind of say they were walking away from Honda sponsorship somewhat and scaling it back, I thought. So it was like they they had divorced too. It was sort of like Red Bull had kind of gone away as well. And I think you've got more Red Bull money going to KTM and the KTM clones than what is going to be put in at HRC. Um, but yeah, I, I just I think it's tough to sell in this econ. And I don't know if the economy is really technically bad. I, I mean, I know what it is here. I don't know what it is in Europe. But it just doesn't seem like there's bang for the buck right now. There does seem to be new sponsorship opportunities for, say, the Formula One guys now. Is that because of Drive to Survive? Is it because it's an American company now because Liberty Media owns it? I, I do not know. But it just seems like there's the big money people are missing from this, and I'm not sure why. But, you know. I mean, in terms of Red Bull contractually, it might be that their hands are somewhat tied because – the KTM squad, as you say, that is officially a Red Bull KTM squad. So, you know, I forget the exact name because they're so convoluted, but KTM Red Bull Racing, whatever it is. But so it might be that beyond that, they can only really go down the personal rider sponsorship route, you know, in terms of major, major input and signage, let's say. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a big issue, is it? No. As you say, it's, it's trading conditions globally. <laughs> sort of things improve a little bit and then other stuff happens as we've seen in the last few weeks to upset the apple cart again so yeah bringing big money into any sporting arena i guess is a pretty difficult sell at the best of times and it's not the best of times at the moment so um anyway it doesn't seem to have affected the show in the sense that we get great racing and you know in a sense i don't really think it would be necessarily great if MotoGP went kind of full-on F1 in scale, I think, you know, because that would have consequences. So I'm reasonably comfortable with where things are. Yeah, I, I, you know, the racing, I think, has probably been the best it's ever been. 
there's so many guys that are competitive and can win that it's 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 not like the the, the 80s and the 500s and it's it's a I think it's the right size field. There was some there were some really small grids in the 80s and whatnot. So yeah, there's a lot more factories involved now too. So let's be happy. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Ducati. They launched Levant. Is it Levano Ducati? Can't ever pronounce Lenovo. the computer name. Yeah, Lenovo. Yeah, that's Lenovo. it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, they are there. I don't think there was too much from that one either, except that Gigi was saying that the you know, fairing arrow is going to change before the season opener. And supposedly, from what I've heard as a rumor, they found a whole lot more horsepower. So the from what I understand, the gap between the 23 and the 20, what, no, the 22 and the 23, the gap between those two motorcycles was fairly small. There's going to be supposedly a very big gap between a 23 Ducati and a 2024 Ducati. Now, is that because Marquez is on a private bike? Is that just pure speculation by people? I don't know. We're not going to know. And we're not going to know until they start testing. Mm, interesting. I mean, Ducati have had their fingers burnt by making big changes in the past. Because, of course, testing is a problem now. They don't get a chance to find out if stuff's going to work or not. And this is where my technical knowledge or rules knowledge is perhaps a little bit less good than it should be. But I'm assuming that they, they will have to freeze their engine fairly so, early. Yes, uh, so they can't really afford to make a mistake. So mm, interested. I mean, the comment that I read, and I think I picked it up on X, one of the people that was at the launch was Gigi saying, as you pointed out, Jim, that the bike was going to look quite radically different from a fairing perspective. So you wonder what piece of magic he's conjured up over the winter. Or, well, it would have been last year sometime, wouldn't it, not over the winter. But uh, curious to see what that bike looks like when they roll it out for testing. Yeah, I think the Aero Boffins have been at work. I I mean, it could be weirdly bulged side fairings or something. So as you lean over at 60 degrees, you create downforce. It could be anything of that nature. The one thing is, you know, we're talking about the tire pressure rule now is in effect from the first race. If you're yeah. beyond, oh gosh, help me out, Rich. I think it was like 1.8 bar. I think that was the minimum was something around 1.8 bar, something like that. It, if you're below it at all, at all, you're done. Disqualified. There is no appeal. There is no, you are done. So is this yep. fairing designed to create more feel on the front end to, to keep the tire pressure in balance, to keep that or is it is it designed to cool that tire so you're in traffic who knows what gd dinlini has got to be he could come up with a million different things of insane cool that we're all going to drool on for a while but it's going to be interesting to see what it does look like and then how does it perform perform on the racetrack if you've got if truly there's a motor change that's a lot more horsepower and a big aero fairing change i would think it would be very difficult to decide how to set up the bike or to it'd be a lot of ifs in there and you have really a compressed amount of time to try to sort out and come up with a baseline setup to a motorcycle to be comfortable with to go race to go win a 
championship of 22 races again mm. Ooh, you know you, like as you said you got to be right coming out of the gate with this one and the question is would you bet against Gigi Delinia being correct my uneducated guess is along the lines that you just said really which is that maybe it's tied into this tire pressure thing because that is a championship losing scenario if you get that wrong consistently now no doubt various people at various times through the year are going to fall foul of that tire pressure rule so has he come up with something that i mean i don't know how that would work you're not allowed movable devices so you know i, I just don't know but you know gg is kind of the adrian newby we've said it numerous times in the past haven't we? he always kind of steals a march on everybody else and finds something in the rules that will help them out so yeah i've just well i can't wait to see what rolls out in the qatar test well in fact there's um are they testing at malaysia i think before qatar aren't they so uh, i don't remember need to check need to check is. the calendar but they'll be getting going soon although again i guess they'll keep their powder dry in some areas but testing is so limited they can't really afford not to test new stuff so we will see it fairly soon i would imagine just whilst it's in my mind jim mm, yes talking of engine power on the qatar show that i put out which was the long chat with herve poncherol we got a bit of a scoop on the fact that he mentioned that the 2027 engine reg is going to be an 850 cc did you pick that one up yes 850s we will park that one for another day, but yes, that let's park that. A... Yes, because we kind of we we've been here before, haven't we? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So we're going to slow them down by displacement. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, let's park that for another. A treacherous time. path, but that yes. was uh, I, I had it in my mind to just re-engage. Yes. I was with that shocked. It was like, well, it's eight. We've agreed it's eight hundred and fifty cc's. What? <laughs> a couple of people that I spoke to subsequently in the paddock after I'd had that chat with her, they said or intimated that that might be quite as locked in as he was making out but i mean he's the boss of urta so he's he about as he's about as far at the top table as you can get so and it was a fairly i thought a fairly clear statement from him that that is the direction that they're going to go in now yes it's true that some of this stuff will still have to be ratified i guess and, and put into the code for the 2027 and beyond regs but that's a seismic shift again Mm-hmm. and obviously is an attempt to slow the bikes down so well between that and the green fuels that's going to be a horsepower drop now okay you might have a horsepower drop for say one half of a season because you know who, whoever is supplying the, the fuels wh- whether it's shell aji Repsol, whoever is going to be working behind the scenes consistently to make a better product racing yeah. is the crucible of of man, it's the crucible of racing will give you a better product right it's technological warfare is what i call it yes it is isn't it that's what Completely. it is and I so mean, there'll there's... be more power for more efficiency that is what they will continually do yep. uh, it's which yeah. will benefit us ultimately oh, i mean that's the whole of point of sport isn't it in this particular regard this is the test bench for the stuff that you and i get to ride or drive or fly yeah. <laughs> you know ultimately so yeah I have nothing against electric. I do think there are some shortcomings. I think there's some infrastructure shortcomings, but in a motorcycle, the heavy weight of a battery just doesn't seem to want to work for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. I know. Oh man, TT, I get it. But those bikes are still heavy and yes, they will get better. 
but it's going to be a lot longer. And I think the it, in green fuels may just be an interim stage. To, it might be a step stone to full electric until the batteries are, you know, fully there. But we don't want this to turn into a Jordan Peterson yeah, uh, podcast yeah, on I, politics no. and stuff. No, but no, I, no, I no, think no. I think synthetic fuels are actually the future. I think the internal combustion engine's got a long, long way to go. Electric in towns and cities makes total Perfect. sense yes. for all sorts of different reasons. In terms of heavy cargo, you can see hydrogen because packaging is less of an issue if you're on trains and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Synthetic fuel for everybody else in terms of using infrastructure that exists and technology that's proven in practice for a century. Why yep. wouldn't you? So definitely no MotoGP will play its part in sure. helping to make that happen. I'm convinced. Yeah. So speaking of like fuels and whatnot, uh, Repsol, are they going to scale back support for HRC? Have they said I... that? I mean, I yeah, feel like well, I, to. I, Jim, I saw something and I can't remember where I saw it. Again, I, I'm pretty sure it was on X from a, you know, a reliable source, not just somebody spouting off in the way that people tend to do. But I, I definitely saw something that suggested that because of the sort of the marker situation, Repsol were maybe going to scale back a bit in terms of their inputs. And I'm sure I read that there was going to be a bit more of the kind of classic Honda red, white and blue creeping into the color scheme now we will see in a couple of weeks when the official launch happens but i wouldn't be entirely surprised because again oil companies presumably with the way things are going at the moment might be looking to scale back their investment as well in areas that aren't core to their business so but that's a relationship that's been going on as we said a few shows ago since the yeah. mid 1990s hasn't it so i mean i i don't for one moment think Repsol will disappear from the bike, but I wonder if it will be a bit less for long this year and beyond. We'll see. It could be. I mean, the last all HRC bike was Dewan's 94 Honda, and that to me was still one of the coolest paint schemes on a motorcycle. Mm. I just thought yeah. it was brilliant. Yeah. I still look at it and think it's brilliant, but it's also my happy place of childhood. So nostalgia <laughs> yeah. is a disease. So if it can be more red, white, and blue, I will take it. All it was that 94 yeah. was that interim year between Rothmans and Repsol, wasn't it? They had that kind of one year where there was no sort of yes. prime brand, other brand on the bike. And yeah, I do distinctly remember that bike. So I was at Donington Park that year. Yeah, it's a beautiful bike. It was, it yeah. still is a beautiful bike. But then again, they're all beautiful in their own way, right? <laughs> I mean, even the yeah. even the Ducatis with all their flips and wings and things are still dead on sexy. But anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, yes, the season will can start in Qatar on March the eighth, which will be preceded by the official test the nineteenth to the twentieth of February, and that concludes MotoGP news. I will give a shout out here quickly to Dakar, specifically to Ricky Brayback, the American who has become a two-time champion in the motorcycle category at the Dakar, having won in 20 and now in 23, which is a pretty slim picking thing to have won Dakar once, let alone do it twice. So again, I don't know if Ricky's got the... The ability to catch, I think it's Stefan Peter Hansel who's got five motorcycle tire, five motorcycle titles at the car. I believe my Dakar knowledge is weak, so if I've got that wrong, I'm sorry. But it's possible the Honda's really good, and KTM admitted they've got a lot to catch up to those Dakar bikes. But 
Mm. With that being said, from there, we'll move from the rally to World Superbike. Season starts, Philip Island, February 23rd. Always love the island. Superbikes at the island is a great way to start, too. I think that's preceded by their test there as well. They right, Rich? normally have a test there, yeah. yeah. Uh, BSB starts in Spain on the 20th of April. Is that true, Rich? Starting in Spain? Yeah. Really? Uh, okay. Well, all right. Yeah, because uh, MSV, who own quite a few of the premier tracks in the UK, Brands, Alton, Donington Park, I'm pretty sure they bought the Navarra facility. Huh. Well, World Superbike had a race there last season, I believe. So this is the first time BSB will have been there. I think they're at, some of the teams have been out there testing, obviously because it's better weather than in the UK, which isn't hard at this time of year. Uh, so that's where the season starts for the first time ever. But it is, you know, a fair way off compared to the other two championships or the other three championships, because we're going to mention AMA in a minute. But yeah, I'm just kind of keen to sort of reset the compass. And now that we're into 2024 and we haven't got too long, we, what, it's a month until World Superbike kicks off. And I know we tend to focus on this show uh, on MotoGP, and quite rightly so. It is the premiere, but I do love World Superbike, and I can't wait for this season to start because top rack on that BMW is going to be, I think that is going to be the big interest point in motorcycle racing, or one of the big interest points this year, because he is now firmly established as, I think he's World Superbike now. I think all of the MotoGP talk probably is done and dusted now. He'll be with BMW probably for several seasons, I would think. And, you know, we've got these new weight rules that have come in this year. So the lighter riders are getting penalised a bit with ballast to kind of try and level the playing field. That BMW's always been fast, but nobody's quite cracked it yet. And Top Rat might, might not, but might be the guy that brings BMW the success that they've been desperate for and investing tens of millions of euros in mm. i'm sure for several seasons now so that is going to be fascinating i can't wait for world superbikes to get going this year and again we will try well they will be sort of talking about this over coming episodes as you've alluded to jim we'll be trying to get to at least one world superbike around this year hopefully a couple if we can get some more people involved plus some of the older hosts that step up from time to time so yeah gonna try and up the ante a bit further this year with content yep uh and lastly moto america will start their season at daytona with the 200 that is now a super sport race for 600s and not super bikes because let's face it super bikes have kind of outgrown the idea of running around 31 degree banking <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of how it goes guys oh so with that I think to kick off this first show of the new year, what better way to do it than to actually go backwards in time and kind of talk about some high points that are there in the uh, MotoGP class from this year past. So let's start, Rich, by going back to Moto3. I have compiled a list of five things that I think were of the most interest to the Moto3 class, and we'll go through the list and we'll talk about that. You come up with some wooden spoons for the class, I think. Mm -hmm. And after we get through that, we'll discuss who is our rider of the year in the class. So, and we'll do that for all the Moto MotoGP classes. So without any further ado, I'll start Moto3, five things that Jim uh, thinks was rather interesting. Uh, this is not really, I do have a five list. We'll count down. These could really be in any order. It's just things that I thought of as I was going. But number five is if you thought, and it told me a Honda rider would win the world title over the KTM horde, I'd have laughed in your face. Yeah, that I was mean, against the grain. 
Yeah. That was very much against the grain. The KTMs were a force this year. The I mean, in all the clones, right? You had KTMs, you had the Huskies, you had the Gas Gas. You, you had all of those people all running at the front all the time. And you had to think at some point that it had to be someone from one of those teams was going to win. And with the way Hall Gardo started the season and the consistency that he had, you just didn't think anybody was going to beat him to that championship. It seemed as though it was like a foregone conclusion, especially after we got through maybe through Magello and Le Mans, which is what, mid-May? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the kid was looking on fire, just racking up points and podiums. So Yeah, first third of the season, he was just ripping it out, wasn't he, and mm-hmm. looked unbeatable. And then certainly the second half of the season, he had a torrid, torrid time, poor lad. Yes. Number four for me for the Moto3 five things, uh, the arrival of Alonzo on scene. This was a kid who had two previous wildcard starts before he became a factory gas gas rider and would ride a whole season. In his debut rookie season, four wins, third in the title chase, and... It has more in the way that he also had eight podiums. So he had four wins and eight podiums. He wound up third in the championship, which that's saying something. But for me, it's the way Alonzo won races. He won them from deep in the pack, rode to the front, and in a strategic way would zap everybody with three or four laps left. Like you, the race would be between Horgardo, Masia, Sasaki, and all said, whoa, hey, Alonzo just showed up on scene. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to win this one, guys. And he won at tracks that he didn't really have a lot of experience at. He won at Silverstone, which he'd never seen before until then. You know, yeah. he was in Europe. He was a Red Bull Rookies Cup. He ran the CEV. He was su- somewhat successful in those series, but he just sort of burst onto the scene. And I think it's everybody wants to compare him to Acosta as the last guy who burst onto the scene and was incredible, right? Acosta did it very differently than Alonso did. Acosta kind of qualified in front, got out front, and kind of won out front. Yeah, okay, there was the race from behind in Qatar, and there was a seasonal slump there at the end that the kid finally put back together again and won a world championship. But Alonzo did it so differently than the way Acosta did. And I was super proud of how he how he did it. Yeah, I mean, we tend to be a bit spoiled every year with Moto3, don't we? Because somebody bursts onto the scene. So to stand out in the way that Alonzo did, given that context, really is saying something. And as you say, Jim, he melds real aggression with composure. It's almost a kind of stupid thing to say. But How about surgical of, precision? Because his passes are very yeah. tactical, very surgical, yeah. surgeon-like. He he doesn't really bang anybody out of the way. He just simply occupies the space that you thought you had. There are some riders that when they come through the pack, you know that there's going to be some casualties involved. <laughs> you, you know, you just have that suspicion that a few people are going down as somebody comes through. With Alonso, as you say, he is much more calculating, but ruthless at the same time pretty but pretty clean and that is really saying something in moto three up the front because that is you know real kind of knife fight territory isn't it so again i 
I'll annoy people by saying this. I mean, there's so much to look forward to in all of these classes, but Moto3, once again, is going to be absolutely mega this year, I'm sure. And Alonso, with, with that season behind him, I mean, he's got a lot to live up to, Jim, hasn't he? Is he a title favourite? He has to be a title favourite because he's got a season's knowledge under his belt. And if you're going to do it when you're young, sort of season two or three is generally when people do it before they start moving up the classes. So I saw him in Qatar. I didn't talk to him, but tiny little kid, but... I guess he'll start to grow up a little bit physically as well as we go on now. But yeah, he was mega, absolutely mega. Okay, let's move to number three. Mine is Anshu's maturity and his breakthrough wins. Now, he won three races. That was pretty good. And in, in the form of winning races in Moto3, to win more than one is special. He won three. Okay, yeah, Alonso won four. But still, you know, he he his maturity was has increased. His size has increased. And yes, okay. He he mentioned to come and by maturity, I mean kind of like what he would do off the bike, what he would say off the bike, how he conducted himself. So he would complain, I'm the biggest guy in the class and I can't, I'm not fast. But yet he eventually stopped talking about that and just started winning races to shut everybody up about it. That's maturity to me. And he won three. I think he did two on a row. Didn't he get like Austria and something back to back? I don't remember exactly. I know he had three wins that much. I'm positive of, mm -hmm. but I think his tutelage in the, in the IO squad, I think Aki IO and, and them have really helped him to mature because he goes to moto two next year in the IO squad. So he's going up with Io again on basically, I think, a bike that will fit him much better. He does have to get used to the bigger wheels on the bike. That's one of the things going from the Moto3 bikes to the 17s that are on the Moto2 bikes. But it's going to be a weird level playing field with Pirelli taking over as a sole tire supplier in the underclass. And I've been trying to think when the last time Dunlap didn't have a presence in MotoGP, and I can't remember when that was. Long, long time ago. Long time. So, yeah. I mean, I, I can remember from the 80s, right? So, from there, I know it was predominantly Michelin in the Moto, or sorry, in the 500 class. But the 250s were all Dunlap shot. And I'm pretty sure the 125s were too. Mm -hmm. um, so, as that went up, it just sort of became the same thing. And now Pirelli has, you know, seized control of that. It's kind of impressive by Pirelli to to get themselves in there for tender but you know, yeah yeah hey. I mean Pirelli kind of other than the top class they kind of rule the world in bike racing just at the moment what's Moto America running on are they Dunlop they're Dunlop still it's a different which... Dunlop I know but well, yeah, a slightly it's... different version of Dunlop but correct you know you got Pirelli controlled tire in BSB and World Superbike and now in Moto2 and Moto3 you wonder how long it might be before MotoGP falls under the I think it will happen well. sooner than we think. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, Dennis Andre, have you had a chance yet, Jim, to listen to the I interview? I haven't got to oh. that interview yet. Uh, he's box office. In the same way that Acosta is box office, Onchu is, he is a real hoot. He really is. Because we were talking about penalties and stuff, and he kind of made this very sort of... Uh, <laughs> possibly unintentionally glib comment that it's not getting a penalty it's just which one is he going to get you know he kind of said it like that you know and he's a very very yeah. funny guy he's a great attitude and 
you know, he, we spoke about his kind of change of mentality almost and his maturity that seems to have developed over the last couple of years. And he very much acknowledged the fact that the IO squad is the place to be to kind of further that part of your development. Um, as much as he acknowledged the fact that Hervé Pontural, because obviously raided in the Tech 3 squad for several seasons, is kind of like his father in the paddock. Although I guess there's a lot of people that would say that about Hervé. But uh, yeah, Onchu is just a great, great personality, I think. Exactly the sort of person that MotoGP needs. And we will see him, I'm sure, in MotoGP eventually. I'd be very surprised if that didn't happen. And I suspect, given that he's part of that uh, Keenan Sofaroglu camp, where he trains with Toprak, he t- trains with his brother. Um, there's a younger Sofaroglu as well who runs in World Supersport. I can't think of his name off the top of my head, so apologies. But there is a so that camp is full of talent, and the, I'm sure that their training sessions on bigger bikes are pretty ferocious. I would think so. My suspicion is that Dennis Onji will adapt to Moto Two pretty quickly. Now, that's not to say he'll be up front winning races or anything, but I suspect he'll be solidly around the top 10 fairly early on and throughout the season. So, yeah, I, I, again, really looking forward to seeing what he can do. Okay, number two on the list. The pain of Sasaki losing the title or the many number of races he lost by, and I will call this, lack of aggression. And I say that because that boy rode completely differently at Valencia after the title had been taken from him and like uh hello where was that like 21 races ago Mm. there's a point about being consistent in moto 3 because consistency does win you a championship i will not deny that fact but wow (laughs) that was kind of crazy and i mean i like sasaki i mean he goes on to moto 2 which is great for him that's fantastic but i feel like you know there was a real chance for the first Japanese little bike champion since like, 94 or something like that. It's a long time. Uh, it's been a long time. Yeah, in the small class. Yeah, golly. Uh, yeah, because that's, that's I didn't really have access to the small classes at the time, so I really couldn't tell you from personally like who it was. I, I, I somehow thought it was like. But it- Somebody's shouting at their listening Yeah, oh, of course they are. <laughs> Write and tell us, motopod at motopodcast.com, guys, or reach out to at Richard Jowd on X and at MotoRGV on X. We'll, but, but we appreciate right. yeah. the feedback. Yeah. So anything about Sasaki? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's I disheartening, think, but it's true. Yeah. It's a big story. He's a lovely kid. I mean, very lovely. gentle. Yeah. He comes across that way when you talk to him. Again, mm. when you get to the interview, you're here. Uh, I mean, massive was a worthy winner of the title on his performance on track. You know, he won a lot of races and Saki was, yeah, very, very consistent. But you just always had that slight kind of worry that, or feeling that at the end of a race where he came second so many times that he kind of let a win slip through his fingers. It was easy to say that from the comfy chair that I'm sitting in. You know, Moto3 is a cutthroat class. But, yeah, it kind of felt like one that slipped away somewhat, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. All right, number one. Do you think you know what my number one is, Rich? I don't know. No, I mean, it could no. be anything. There's so much okay. in Mojo 3. No. <laughs> so my number one, number one thing was the way Masia won the championship. It was was it was terrible in my mind, the way that he clinched the title in Qatar. Uh, the team tactics were brutal. Was it legal? Yeah. 
was it unsportsmanlike? Yep. And I mean, you know, wow. I mean, I, I get where you were, what you were thinking, but still that was, you know, that was a bit much. I mean, I'm, I'm all for being ruthless on a motorcycle racing for a world championship. And if, if the two of them have gone, had gone down in a hump together in a gravel trap, I wouldn't have cared, but to just run in and push your opponent offline and okay, hear me out. I get that. That's a block pass to push them off so that you can maintain your speed and push them out a little bit. But no, you can see that Masia and Fernandez had no intention of turning a motorcycle in that corner. Their intention was to run straight and go to the edge of the track before they were ever going to let Sasaki back on. And I think that is wrong. But that's what happened. Is Masa a worthy champion? Yes. Considering the fact that he had a bike that he parked against the rail in Austria with a motor problem, which that's like unheard of in a Moto3 bike. He, he won more races, and that's what it took. Now, Holgardo lost the plot. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I think he should have won it, but for whatever reason, the kid definitely just lost the plot. But that was number one. How did... What do you think about that one, Rich? I think it's a worthy number one. I mean, in the interest of time, I suppose, it's also one of my wooden spoons or probably my wooden spoon for Moto3 from a team perspective. And of course, we are speculating that this was a plan, but it certainly sure looked like it. outside. It did look like that, particularly once Fernandez turned up on the scene and started his antics as well, because he didn't really have skin in the game, particularly, well, he didn't have, from the point of view of the, riders championship now yes you might say he had skin in the game in terms of wanting to ingratiate himself seat. yeah and maintain a position in the squad because of course he was a late season call up once they booted suzuki out it just smelt rotten to me the whole thing you know and it it's a shame because as we've acknowledged and you've just said masia was the better rider over the course of the season and as you said earlier on jim kind of the lone person on a Honda as well, pretty much. Very, very experienced, of course. And so, quite rightly, he should have been up there battling for the championship. So, don't begrudge him having it, but the way it was done in the end, it was kind of a little bit Max Verstappen, Abu Dhabi, wasn't it? You know, the way the championship itself was sealed completely overshadowed all of the hard work that brought them to the point of being in a position to take the championship. And that's the problem. I forget exactly how I phrased it on a WhatsApp message to you, but I kind of said, you know, they managed to grab um, a derision, you know, from, you know, the jaws of adulation, really, because it, he should have gone out on a massive high. And from a social media perspective, we commented at the time, and it went on for several weeks because I was watching it every time, either MotoGP, you know, obviously as the official uh, rights holder, or certainly whenever Leopard themselves put out a tweet about, yeah, you know, Jeremy Massey, 2023 champion. The hatred and vitriol was almost unanimous. Uh, now, that's not unusual on social media, it's true, but it was pretty much, uh, you would have had to spend quite some hours looking for a positive comment in support of that championship. And that's a shame, really, because he worked damn hard to win it. So, yeah, for me, that was a, one of the major wooden spoons of the season, because I think the team didn't really need to do it. Because... 
look at Sasaki's performance over the years, we've just been talking about in a last lap duel, you'd have put your money on Massia every time. So to do it in the way that they did it, yeah, just kind of was a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. And it's a it's a big wooden spoon for me. All right. So is that your wooden spoon? Not for Massia, for the team, because I think it was a team tactic, which the riders engaged in, let's speculate, but I think we can be reasonably sure about that. And they'll carry that around with them for quite a few years to come. Yep. So that's your wooden spoon for Moto3? Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. So that means we're now at rider of the year for Moto3? You want to go first? Yeah, I... Well, I don't think this is a left field one, but it might not be the most obvious one, but I'm going to go with Colin Vire. Good pick. Because there's a rookie, again, he's come through the Red Bull system, the rookies and whatnot, but really burst onto the scene. Late in the year. Late in the year, won a race, was really consistent through that second half of the season, really kind of got himself together. I think he had a few injuries, he said in the interview that I did with him. Had the summer break, kind of, got fit again, reset, took what he'd learnt in the first half and, again, went on a bit of a tear, didn't he? Culminating in that win in Malaysia, I think it might have been. I think so, yes. It was one of the Eastern, East, Southeast Asia races. Yeah, it was on one of the flyaways for sure and was just consistently good thereafter, really. And, again, will be a guy to look out for. And I put the question to him that I thought was rather unusual, his physical stature, because he's Dutch and the Dutch tend to be slight generalization but tend to be pretty tall and lean as a kind of na- nation let's say a national stereotype he didn't seem to think his size was an issue at all because he's not heavy with it you know he's very very lean as they all are so and in some respects aerodynamically once you are positioned and tucked in there can be some advantages in that certainly when you're going down a straight so he just did a really, really brilliant job. So for me, although there are many people that you could pick for Rider of the Year in Moto3, because, I mean, it is a wash with talent. But I thought he was perhaps not the most obvious choice, but I think he certainly deserves a shout-out. That's, that's a great pick. Me, I'm going to go with Masia. One, because he held up against the Horde. And he could have really packed it in when his bike packed it up in Austria. That was a, there was a pretty big point gap that he was going to have to overcome at that point. He didn't. He got back. He got on with the, with the show and won it around early, okay, with some weird tactics by the team. But let's set aside a team tactic and talk about what he did. He yep. won races. He finished consistently. He held off the horde of KTMs, rode a lot harder than a lot of the KTM guys. He was much later on the brakes, a lot deeper. And, you know, he could have really lost – his focus and crashed a lot more than he did, but he didn't. And that's how you win championships. And you, he was, it was the long reuniting with Leopard who he had entered Moto three with. So it's sort of that full circle thing for me to win a world championship there. So I will give it, I will give writer of the year to Masia honorable mention Alonzo on you, those two for me. So. And Holgado, I suppose who was really brilliant in the first sector of the championship but i don't know maybe i'm kind of weird about that but i just didn't see how i mean hogardo was good but he wasn't winning all the time and it just didn't work for me to i mean again i'm i'm weird i'm not like the oh your last race is your only race that means anything but 
Uh, Helgardo's got a little bit more to prove to me next year. Yeah, I, I think you might be misremembering the first third of the season. I mean, he did, he was consistently winning and on the podium. I, 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 my uh, consistently on goes. the podium, I remember. But he winning, no. was, had quite a lot of bad luck as well. He was, I mean, he was taken out several races in the second half of the season so that did not help him but there was just a general decline in form for whatever reason maybe it was pressure i mean you know these guys are so young yeah it's it gonna be hard as hell to try to grow up in the paddock yeah it has to be yeah because essentially and, i mean you're not doing what every other teenager is doing at that point in time right exactly yeah well what were you doing as a teenager back then right i know exactly what i was doing okay i was racing motorcycles but i was also chasing girls why well, i didn't do any good at motorcycles didn't do any good with girls <laughs> either you got to focus on one or the other you can't do both the thing that was illuminating jim actually and I, I won't keep going on about having been to Qatar because people get a bit annoyed with me but i'm still kind of basking in the experience because it was so amazing really to see it but one thing i certainly took away from that experience and with the motor three guys because they are so young in particular is a how busy they are through a race weekend uh, you know outside of riding the bike i mean and how unbelievably professional they are i mean bearing in mind these are like 15 16 17 year old kids not 15 now because of the rules but say 16 17 year old kids i mean that is not old and they're, you know they're dealing with growing up they're dealing with having girlfriends you know they're dealing with all sorts of different things and having a job that high profile and that much pressure and yet you ask them a question and they answer you in almost perfect English. I can't speak to anybody in a foreign language. You know, my bad, but I can't. So, yeah, they're, they're just phenomenal, these kids, you know. And um, you kind of forget that a little bit. And when you are in that environment for a few days, as I was very lucky enough to be, you really do get a sense of just how much is involved in what they do. And kind of, yeah, it's a great lifestyle. I mean, it's dangerous what they do. But it's a mega, mega way to spend your young years. But for every yin there's a yang isn't there and you know there's a lot comes with that on you know on the other side of the coin and they, they are stupendous really all of them okay let's look at uh, moto two and five things for me so number five again uh tony arbolino losing the plot mid-season and uh also sort of along with this chave uh celestino vietti where 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 did those guys go uh, you know, as the season started out, there was this great racing between uh, between Arbolino and Acosta. There was a great race that happened at Coda. Uh, there was a great race that happened in 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 Le Mans and then Mugello. And then we sort of we got to summer break, and then like Acosta just simply put his head down and started to win races consistently, and or or was very you know close to the front all the time. And Arbolino was like, oh, he qualified twelfth, he qualified eighth. He, he whoa, what 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 happened? It was just one of those bizarre things where both of both him and, you know, why? I don't know. It just that was really, really wild that he I don't know if it was the, the dream of chasing the Moto GP ride. And that really caused him to lose his focus on what he was doing, because as soon as he was like, hey, I'm staying with. Um, I love who, who is Mark VDS. Thank you, Mark VDS. It was like, oh, we're at the front again. Okay, was it a pressure thing? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> mm, no. these guys are immune to that stuff, I think, right? But there was a distraction somewhere. I don't know what it was. I, again, you could, you know, I think one of the things that 
top level teams do well is when they lose the plot as far as setup, they know what to take a bike back to. Look, five races ago or three races ago, hey, we put this on the bike and started there. We're going to go back to that because you like that. You finished second on it or whatever it is. So I'm not sure. Just one of those mysterious things that happened this season. And of course, Celestino Vietti showed up, won a race, and then disappeared again. Yeah, I mean, Vietti is almost, to me, more of a worry than Arbelino. I mean, Arbelino had a good start to the season and just it kind of just faded away, didn't it? Perhaps, as you say, a little bit of a resurgence right towards the end. But I think that it's hard not to conclude that that was when the championship was gone and done. That kind of release of pressure possibly just enabled him or maybe he just turned up with some tracks that he prefers who knows Fiatti though I mean that is an enigma right there because I mean did he not win in India as well he just late no, in the season Moto2 won, was Costa won in India but did he, he did he Fiatti won, won a race somewhere around the middle or second you know the towards the second, end yeah I think he won at, didn't he win at uh uh Thailand not it might have been, what what's the new might, one what's the new it one might, it might have been mandalika or mandalika i think he might have won a mandalika yeah it, it was, was just odd. one of those like he'd been nowhere and then suddenly he wins a race and then yeah. he's nowhere again it's like what the hell <laughs> is that i mean that must be so frustrating for the teams to have riders that do that and you do see this quite a bit but really hard to explain really and and it's a worry really because he was looked like he'd be going up fast track to MotoGP a couple of seasons ago, didn't he? He did. And it's uh, he's changed squads this year. He's not in that uh, Fantic team anymore, as it's called, I think, or was called. So maybe a change of scenery will help. But I would say for Vietti, this is a make-or-break year, isn't it? Because if, he, so. if he's anonymous this year, then you figure that probably people's patience will run out. I would have thought people's patience would have ran out with Joe Roberts too, but they haven't. Well, I, I suppose in, the thing that Joe's got in his favor is that he's kind of the lone American, isn't he? So there's, you know, there's some reasons for him to stick around commercially. Yeah. I'm a bit, a bit, bit contentious on saying that. I mean, I think he's got the talent to be there, but he does blow hot and cold and it will be very interesting to see how he does back at American racing this season, as we can now say. But, you know, Vietti's got a slightly different problem in that he's an Italian and there's plenty of fast Italians around. So yes. losing one wouldn't be such a big shock to the championship, would it? No. Number four, you'll like this one, Rich. Jake Dixon wins. Not only did he just win at Assen, he then won again at Barcelona. And the Barcelona race that he won was well played by Jake. It showed that Jake is really... His game has really succeeded. So I was very proud of Jake to, to win. British pride, British pride. Jake Dixon, and again, I'm probably going to be contentious, slightly contentious. He's very typically British in the sense that it's all very hard work. And I don't think I'm, I'm sort of being too insulting, probably to say that, I mean, Jake is a supremely talented rider. Of course, as they all are, but you don't, he's not kind of that generational rider that comes along and, it, and everybody's just like kind of down on their hands and knees but he's a guy that just gets better every year and he applies himself really hard he's really hard on himself mentally as well 
beats himself up for every little mistake. But year on year, he gets better. And again, it was a breakthrough year this year. As you say, Jimmy won a couple of races. So, you know, that's a big tick in the box. But when I spoke to him, and it's on one of the interviews that went out a few days ago, you know, he's, he's quite sort of down in the dumps about stuff. And that is kind of the British race. He's a little bit like Nigel Mansell used to be. It was all quite hard work, you know, and it's sort of kind of like pushing water up a hill in a way. And it doesn't really need to be like that. Because again, I think, you know, if he starts off the season strong and builds on, again, builds on last season, he should be a title contender. Although, I mean, that is a stern challenge with some of the other people that he's going to have to contend with. But he's on the right team, he's on the right bike, he's in an environment that he knows, very settled there. And he's got all the tools in the box to do the job, hasn't he now? So I think if he was just a little bit less hard on himself and let his talent shine a bit more, uh, and not be quite so down in the dumps about when things don't go absolutely right. He'd probably do even better. So hopefully that's what will happen. I hope so. But thank you for the British shout out. No, no problem. <laughs> I, Jake deserved it in my book. You know, it was one of the, yeah. that was a big story to me. That was a, that was yeah. a, Jake Dixon all year was a big prominent front player. So yeah. Number three, the absolute mad racing all year. The class has been rejuvenated. Smoto two had some absolutely fabulous racing all year long yeah okay there were a couple snooze fest i'm not gonna lie india being the fat being the prominent one with acosta being like 14 million miles up the road okay yeah. <laughs> i you know i almost want to sit there and, and go like uh yeah occasionally acosta lets you see his true talent was india um this is how good the kid is kind of like rossi rossi understood the show so rossi would always ride in the pack for a little bit and then with three laps to go rossi would take off in, in rossi's prime Let's, let's be honest. And I contest, and I will, I've said this before on the show, I will say it again, I will continue to say it. The only time Rossi ever rode 100% the entire time was Phillip Island in like 2003 when he got a 10-second penalty for passing under yellow, and Rossi just put the hammer down on the V5 and was gone. Yeah, yeah. That could have been every race. Every, that could have been every race that he could have won by 50 seconds. He didn't. Okay. Yeah. Rossi understood yeah. the show. Um, the, the, this class has been hot and cold. When it, be, when it first started and when four strokes, it was mad. It was crazy. It was insane. It was what you loved about the class. You, this year, had a great mix of different people winning, different people being at the front. Barcelona was a great race that Dixon won. The Assen race was outstanding. Um, yeah. Acosta and Arbolino at Coda was another fantastic race. Yeah, it was just those two out front, but it was still a fantastic race. So we always we, we always talk about like, oh, well, this wasn't much to say in this Moto2 race. And you kind of gloss over it. No, there was a lot that we talked about in Moto2. And it wasn't just Acosta being in the class. Everybody, it, it, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats. It was like there was an influx of talent that came in that caused everybody to up their game. Jake upped yep. his game, right? You know, Arbolino came in. His game was at the top. You know, it, all those things happened and it made for a really great season. Is that going to be next year? Are we going to have a great season like that? I don't know, but I'm going to revel in this one because a lot of times that Moto 2 race is a real snooze fest. The big unknown going into this season is obviously, is again, the Pirelli tyres, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Because what you tend to find in any championship is if you have stability of technical rules, things close up and so the field gets tighter and as a result, the racing should get better. So the big shakeup this year is the tyre one. But the Pirellis, from what I understand of these things, which is minimal, it's true, but, you know, they are, you know, there's a much more feel with them. 
not more sort of edge grip, the sort of a squidgier type of thing. So it shouldn't, it should only help, I think, probably the racing. So, yeah, I mean, Jim, a few seasons ago, particularly when towards the end of the 600 Honda engine uh, version of Moto2, I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find a race you'd ever want to go back and watch in a season. This year, I'd say probably maybe half of the races were really, really very good. Yeah, there were some that were spread out and a bit of a, bit of a snooze fest. I mean, I think with Acosta, he was so much better than everybody else that by the end of the season, it, people had almost kind of given up in a way because they just couldn't beat him because he's so good all of the time and he doesn't crash very much. You, it's virtually impossible to beat him. Bearing in mind, it was his second season, so he was well established in the class at this point. He'll have a tougher challenge in MotoGP, of course, this year. but And that's good for us. And that's good for him as well and good for the championship. But yeah, Moto2 was really, really good this year. And we did not. I was not expecting it to be, I have to say. I thought it was going to be pretty turgid, and it wasn't at all. Mm-hmm. Mm, sorry, somebody's come home, so the dogs are barking if you hear that. Uh, number number two, uh, this is a little weird here, but I'm going to talk about the maturity of Pedro Acosta. You saw a very different Acosta from his days winning a championship in Moto3 to this championship that he won in Moto2. The kid was much more composed. He was definitely had understood that there are times that everyone is slightly better than you. So I will take the points and I will race the race that I'm going to race as opposed to push and put it on the ground. He's got that magical mix of everything that you want, but it was just really interesting to watch him sort of grow up in the class, right? He was a kid riding a Moto3 bike to now this kid who's matured as a teen as a 19 year old and getting ready to at some point be 20 in this first moto gp season mm -hmm. so that to me was really cool to watch i do think he was really funny when he had the pizza box in the backpack <laughs> at magello that was funny yeah i think he's going to bring some of that back because i think he's he he will be there. It, it's going to take him a little time in MotoGP to to get there, but he will start. You know, I missed that. If Rossi had all the celebration things, right? Lorenzo had them too. Marquez has kind of had some, you know, quote unquote ones. I mean, the one where he's standing up on the bike and he's got it leaned over like almost forty five degrees. Okay, that's pretty. Yeah, cool. that was <laughs> that was Marquez's thing, wasn't it? Doing something yeah. as he went across the line. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I always found Lorenzo's a little bit hard to bear really because it was a bit too much trying to copy the Rossi drama. formula yeah well yeah just man on the moon and Laguna Seca yeah okay, Rossi had already done all that stuff and Lorenzo yeah. kind of tried to replicate it but it was too close whereas I think Acosta probably he can be the next guy that really kind of brings a bit of joy back into things you know because we, we do need a bit of that plus it must be said he also in an interview that he gave which I think is available on YouTube and stuff did make the point that we've been talking about numerous times over the times that we've been doing Motorpod together since I came in, which is that they, you know, he, he was saying that there's a little bit of needles, not a bad thing. You know, it's all a bit friendly at the moment. And he, I think he will go in there. It'll take a bit of time to get himself up to speed, although he didn't look too bad in the uh, Valencia test, I have to say, straight out of the gates, but it'll take him half to a season i'm sure to really establish himself but i think by the time we get into 2025 
he'll start to ruffle some feathers and he will revel in ruffling the feathers because we've seen him do it before. He didn't really need to do it, I don't think, in Moto2 because in his first season, well, I think we all tend to forget, although we have said this before, that you know these kids have been on Moto3 bikes for many, many, many years. So by the time they jump on a Moto2 bike, it is a big change. So he crashed a lot in that first half of last season, if you remember, Jim, and then kind of started to find his feet, broke his leg, Although he didn't do that on the Moto2 bike. I think that was a training accident. Oh, yeah, that's right. He, yeah, he did. That was training. You're right. You're right. Right. Sorry. Um, but it's obviously it set him back in his development on the bike. He missed some races and then had to take it a little bit easier, I guess. But so last year was the learning year. And this year he just went for it. And that that's the talent right there, isn't it? He took what he'd learned and then just went on a rip this year. Sorry, last year. <laughs> I keep saying that. Uh, and so I'm assuming the same sort of thing will happen in MotoGP, but it will be a much tougher challenge in MotoGP because I think, you know, there's a, everybody's brilliant in MotoGP. Uh, and so that's where the mind games and the little bit of needle will start to creep in because that's part of his arsenal. We saw it in Moto3. I mean, he really did get under Dennis Foggia's skin. No two ways about it. And he took great delight in doing it. Now, mm-hmm. that's you can have a view on whether you like that sort of thing or not. I think provided it doesn't get out of hand, I think that can actually be quite good from a spectator's point of view yeah and the championship i think will benefit from a little bit of rivalry again you know because you know rossi biaggi rossi lorenzo stoner and you know and rossi always seems to be rossi was the common denominator wouldn't he and then of course marquez but rossi put the needles on everybody he did that was part of his that was part of his game plan wasn't it yeah uh, and, and as you say costa is very much out of that I think he knows his history. He's one of these kids that probably has, has watched a lot of this stuff and has decided that's the road to go. So, yeah, I can't wait to see that happen when that comes along. All right, number one in the Moto2 class, speed up wins. I thought we it had been it had been so much Kalex dominance. In fact, so dominant that KTM quit building their own bike in that class. I mean, okay, KTM had bigger fish to fry, build a chassis, for MotoGP, I get that, but still, speed up one. It's speed up one. In fact, they won enough that another team will have speed ups. Yeah, no, so, it's great. It's great. Yeah. That's I mean, great that, for the championship. It was huge, huge for the championship. And so, hopefully, Jim, it will encourage you know another chassis manufacturer. I think NTS had a wild card towards the end of the season, didn't they? With somebody. Uh, yeah, somebody did, yeah. I think it's you know they were in the se- they were in championship a few seasons ago. So if we get a bit more variety coming in, if, might help. If people show that you can beat the Calexes, then because mm-hmm. obviously the KTM chassis is gone from Moto2 now. So that was good. I mean Aldega stroke speed up stroke Oscar are my kind of shout out for Moto2 in terms of the one I would pick as my takeaway for the year. Hmm. Again, you could choose any number of riders in Moto2, I suppose, and Acosta would obviously be the, the obvious choice, but Aldegar really turned heads, didn't he, towards the end of the year. Yeah, you can make the argument that Acosta had pretty much wrapped up the title by that point, so he didn't really need to push perhaps quite as hard as he might have otherwise done, but nevertheless, Aldegar was sensational. And he won the last four races on the bounce, I think, didn't he? So... That's you know that doesn't happen very often, and he did it on a Boscoscura as well, and he did it in a variety of tracks and conditions as well. So it wasn't that it was just a certain low grip or whatever favoring the bike. 
and Alonso was good on the Boscoscuri earlier in the year. He sort of tailed off a bit, but um, Alonso L- Lopez, I mean, his teammate, was really good all season for the most part as well. So, yeah, I mean, Speedup has done a brilliant job. Yeah. And that's why they're my shout out with Aldegar in particular. Yeah, Rider of the Year for me, Aldegar, hands down. That was impressive. You're on something different. You have no other data other than your teammate, right? Kalex, you yeah. could, you, you got everybody else has got one. So if you're having trouble, it's you and not the chair, not the frame, right? Everybody's got the same motor, same tires. It's how you set your chassis up. And I thought that was yeah. just absolutely brilliant at the end of the year. I just, it was, it was huge. I think it's huge for the class. I think it's huge for people wanting to come in. Like you said, I think it's great that there's going to be four Bosca Coras on the grid. I think that's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Perfect. Right. And right, I Rich. think, oh, can ahead. I just say, Jim, just yeah, on Aldo, because again, I think he is going to be one of these people that we will really take more and more notice of going forward from here. Don't forget at the beginning of the 2020 or early in the 2022 season, where he was showing really, really well, he was being talked about for a MotoGP ride at that point. I think Aprilia was sniffing around him at that stage because this is pre Maverick Vinales being on the Aprilia, I think. And then his form really sort of dived off and through most of 2022 you probably would have said it was a bit of a disappointment and so for him to come back in the way that he did this year and again he was outshone by Alonso Lopez his teammate in the first half of the season then he got his first win at Silverstone and then he was kind of really 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 great thereafter and brilliant by the time he's winning the last four races so he's really picked himself up from some high points and low points and now he's really on that trajectory that's a bit kind of a Costa-esque, really, in terms of we know where he's headed. HRC wanted him on their bike this year, but it, it, he'd missed the get-out clause date on his contract, so Boscoscura got to keep him. But it'll only be for a season, I expect. I'm sure he's probably already got an HRC contract in his pocket. There'll be a letter of intent signed with somebody, Something. I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. All right, what's yeah. a wooden spoon for the Moto2 class, Rich? American Racing. Oh, for me, yeah. okay. uh, simply because just the whole kind of rider management and contractual kind of fiascos that we saw going on there in the show that I'm going to put out tomorrow, which is my kind of last bits and bobs, tidbits from Qatar. I kind of doorstep John Hopkins as he was walking down the pit lane. He was a little bit reticent to talk to me, actually. He didn't know who I was. He didn't know that I was British. And of course, this was whilst the, the whole Rory Skinner getting dropped whilst he had a contract for this year. Thing was blowing up around American racing. So it was only like a two-minute talk because he didn't really want to talk to me, I don't think. But you could just tell. But that reticence told you everything that you needed to know about where that team is in terms of its media-facing side of things. Of course, they're very happy with Marcos Ramirez in the team because he had as soon as he came in, he did really, really well. And they got Joe Roberts going back for this season. But the whole Sean Dillon Kelly thing that blew up mid-season where he ultimately got booted out. And then, of course, the Rory Skinner thing, where he got dropped in favour of Joe... Well, in favour of Marcos Ramirez, who was subbing for Sean Dylan Kelly at that point, or had effectively replaced STK anyway. And that meant that they just took Rory out very late in the season, which is never good for a rider, because you don't necessarily have many options on where you're going to go. And he had a contract with the team for the 2024 season. So all of that together, I just think from a kind of yeah bad taste in the mouth thing again wooden spoon yep sorry american race i mean great team you know uh, 
made good progress in certain respects during the year and i'm sure most of the personal there top guys and john you know john hopkins if you've read his book he's a pretty decent guy obviously and he did have a nice little chat in the end but you can tell that there's bad feeling around that team in the paddock and amongst the fans at the minute so could do better must do better this year i think okay let's finish this off with moto gp five things number five zarko wins a race he won in australia he won after there was told that he was Going to HRC, we knew well he wasn't he was going to ride for LCR with an HRC contract in his pocket, and he yeah. still won the race. And quite honestly, I was impressed that Zarko finally got one. It was a big moment. Zarko won. Yeah, it was a one of the moments of the season, really, because I don't think anybody begrudged him that win. Nope. Not a person there. Number four was the officials finally let them race after all the track limits and rough riding and well, knock somebody off. It's a penalty. And if you don't knock this person off, it's not a penalty. They kindly finally got it right. They found that little sweet spot about where they wanted to be and what they were willing to call sort of a little bit after halfway. They finally found their feet finally. And I think we saw some great racing at the end because there was riders who weren't afraid to pass anymore. And I think what might have pushed them over the edge was Bender saying something about the effect of like, well, I'm I, not even allowed to pass anybody because if I barely touch them, they're going to penalize me. And I think that press, that statement, whether Bender thought about it from a tactical standpoint or whether it was just pure rider blah coming out, that from that moment, things started to change. There was a, you know, they made the right calls in my mind. In fact, we literally were starting to do shows from, you know, call it maybe two thirds of the way in. I mean, I remember we were going into the races that were all the flyaways to end off the year, the last four or five races there, the the, the two triple headers, right? So mm-hmm. we were taught, we, I remember going, I was like, well, nothing to say about officiating. It was all good. Like they became a non story where they were a story for the past two years. They yes. were a complete. They were the story. The story was track limits. Or why did why was this call made? Good grief! That's just hard racing. Please let it go. And they finally got it together to where it, they should be a non-story. There should not be a story associated with the officials from every weekend that we're racing. They should yeah. be invisible. And if they're invisible, they're doing their job. And I think they finally got it right. And that was a big moment. Now, cross your fingers that we're going to continue with that type of officiating and we're going to see some really good racing next year. Yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute, Jim, if I might, but oh, there's a wooden you, spoon you, in there somewhere. I bet, huh? You carry on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number three, great riding of Bezeki. The guy was on Rossi's team. He won races. He actually had a grand slam, right? He had one, he had pole position, fastest lap sprint race and the actual race itself incredible i mean i didn't see that coming from that team i didn't see it coming from i mean they had good equipment right they have a ducati i i understand it's a year old ducati but still you're putting a fresh team together basically uccio was doing his thing running the team for for rossi and they were able to do what i thought was amazingly great they they sort of almost outshone grassini who was sort of like you know the de facto non factory-esque Ducati team, right? So, you mean, the Ducati pecking order is Leveno Ducati, right? Right behind that is Pramac. That they're, they're together because they've got the same equipment. 
Then yeah. after that, it was always Grassini and then Rossi's team. And now I really thought this year that, you know, Rossi's team sort of jumped over Grassini. I'm not trying to slide Grassini's team at all. I'm not. It's just that's sort of the, the way it seemed to be. Like they were more at the front. Yeah, and the VR46 team is pretty young, don't forget, in MotoGP terms as well. So, no, they did really, really well, didn't they? And Bezeki, I mean, it's really telling to me that he turned down the chance to go to Pramac and stayed put at VR46. I mean, that tells you a great deal about both Bezeki and the VR46 team, doesn't it? So It does. It tells you everything you need to know. I mean, he's... Uh, well, lumbered himself is absolutely not the right word because there's absolutely nothing wrong with being on a 2023 spec Ducati. But he, in making that decision, he, he is a step behind in terms of the bike. But as we've said numerous times, I think, just because it's a 2024 bike doesn't necessarily mean it's better than the 2023 bike. And the chances are that the 23 bike might be better in the early part of the season, particularly if you know they're doing something radical with aero or they've done something with the engine, which may or may not be the best. I mean, who can forget Banyaev spitting his toys out of the pram a few seasons ago when he was getting beaten by Bastianini on the Grassini at that stage. And what was it Banyaev said? I'm basically, I'm just a test rider at this point in time, whereas he's riding my, you know, my old bike that's sorted. That was kind of what he said. Having been beaten in, in the first race of the year in Qatar. So, yeah, I mean, again, we can expect great things from Bezeki, who is kind of the re-embodiment of Valentino Rossi anyway, and in the way that he looks and he's very sort of hippie-ish and quite sort of fun-loving by, by you know, MotoGP standards anyway. So, yeah, good show, Jim. Mm. Uh, my number two is the big split, the divorce. Mark Marquez leaves Honda in slash how bad is it for the Japanese manufacturers? And I include Yamaha there. It's, it's all one story tied together. That that look Marquez had at Saxon Ring, his playground, the place that he wins, that's his place. He owns it. And for him to crash his brains out on that bike and then walk over and simply slump over the guardrail and sit there in reflection for, you know, I what seemed like a lifetime, but obviously wasn't. It was that was huge. You just didn't think it was ever gonna happen. You're wondering, like, what the hell happened to Honda? You know, hello, people. They have peaks and they have valleys. And the problem with Honda, when they're when they're on a peak, it's a very, very high peak. And when they're on a low, it's an extremely high low. And it happens in a heartbeat because it goes from being a peak to being absolutely nowhere. But the climb back out is always the hard thing to do. And that was you just thought that they were going to have to do it with their star rider. And quite honestly, they don't have their star rider anymore. He's left and gone someplace else. So for them, that was hard to let him, him go. He, they, he had a contract. They could have forced him to another year. I think they did the right thing because I was beginning to think that Marquez was basically poison to the team. And I think that, you know, again, this was from one of your interviews with, Lu, with Lucio with Renz. Renz figured out a different way. Hey, less traction control less contraction control more me working the throttle to get what i want yeah so if mark is not there they are going to have more feedback from people may listen to what's being said as opposed to only doing what mark wants to do and not listening to what maybe rins is saying or what zarko is going to say they bought sarko they bought sarko for one reason only he is the ducati test rider Gigi Dolini will tell you as much. 
the parts and pieces of new stuff that they want, it always run Zarko's bike. Now Zarko has that. Given the and might Mar of Han. And Marini, Jim. I mean, Marini, Marini, who I think is a brilliant setup, man. I will, yeah. I will give you that. Maybe not, I dare I say, not a racer. I, I have nothing to say from my comfy little chair that I'm in right here. But I think he's very good at being fast when the bike is correct. And if the bike is not correct, he's not fast. So if you're going to listen to him and he's going to drive your development, then by all means, yay, right? Let's get there. But those are two very strong acquisitions by HRC, which proves that they definitely want to come back. And I think, you know, how long had Marquez been there? He'd been there since when did he jump on a MotoGP bike? Because he was he was the youngest ever champion, and he did it at Coda. Twenty fourteen, think it was, was it? somewhere because he did back to back his first time. So it was like I want to say thirteen and fourteen. I want to say thirteen mm -hmm. was his first year. So from I mean, thirteen yeah. to twenty three, that's ten years. Ten years he spent on that motorcycle, right? It's I. I'm sorry. It's time for a different voice. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think we were willing to admit that to ourselves. But I wasn't. I wasn't. I'm. I'll I'll stand up and say I wasn't. But you you had they had to move on from each other because it was toxic. Yeah, and without preempting the very short show that I'm putting out tomorrow with just a few of the sort of the ad hoc and tidbitty things that to finish off the Qatar coverage, I did a quick interview in the car because he was very kind to drive me to the track with Simon Patterson. And he made a great point, which is I mean, we were talking about markers, but you could apply it to numerous riders through history. And he the point he made was the stellar talents like that, they often are not good development riders because they don't need to develop the bike. They just ride around what it is that's holding the bike back for other people. And so actually by having the divorce, and particularly with the acquisitions that they've made, this might be precisely what Honda need to do to get themselves back. Now, they're not going to turn it around in you know half a season. This is going to be a, probably two, three years at minimum, I would think. At least two, I can think. But they almost had to to put from each other, I think, at this point. Yeah. Both parties had, for different reasons, needed to go their separate ways. And it it probably is the best thing that could have happened, actually, in retrospect. As yeah, much as a seismic shock as it was when we found out it was actually going to happen after all the speculation, will he, won't he? And most of us thought he wouldn't, but he has. And they've put in place very rapidly a really, really solid team of people to get them out of where they are mm -hmm. they've got some aero people now they've got they've poached some formula one people they're, they're doing what they need to do and you know honda is a very different japanese company yamaha's gonna have a lot harder time recovering from where they are than honda will honda will simply just put money and people and resources behind it and they will get there yamaha is going to be very strategic about how they do that and that's going to be that's going to be the running on thing because i I, I don't think the Yamaha is going to be much better at all next year. So if that's the case, you got to believe that Qualtraro is going to be angling for any other bike. And I'm wondering if he doesn't wind up on an Aprilia somewhere. That's yeah, my take. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I'm speculating. And this is really throwing some on the wall to see if it sticks, but I, I just got a feeling he's going to show up at Aprilia. I think Alesh kind of steps aside and, Quattro goes right there. I, I I see it. I don't know why. I just feel it. I could be completely wrong. Probably, yeah, yeah, although you can see an Aldiger interfering with some of these plans because yes. you know again they but had I could see Aldiger being on the new 
RNF squad, the true, true motorsports, right? I could see Aldiger being there. And then, you know, they'll figure out what they're going to do with Vinyala's. Yeah. I mean, I'm a bit more hopeful about Yamaha, I think, than perhaps than you are. I think they, I mean, they didn't have a good season. Of course they didn't, but Honda had a worse season. <laughs> Although that's sort of damning with faint praise, but... I don't know about that. I mean, Honda, Marquez had a lot of podiums and sprint races and stuff. So I, I, I don't, I would argue that Yamaha had a worse season. I didn't Yamaha finish ahead of HRC in the points table though. Eh, probably, but I mean, I think they did, but I don't know. Maybe I mean, it's just because their name is in the book all the more. It was know, slim play. pickings for both, but I don't know. They brought Rins on board again. I mean, will they? do some magic with that engine that they've been promising to do. They keep saying they are going to. But I made a terrible mistake, actually, the last time we spoke, Jim. I Stupidly, I don't know how this came out of my mouth. I, you remember I, remember I mentioned that in the Valencia test, they would have been a bit quicker, but they were running this sort of plastic fairing. I said yeah. because they didn't want to waste money on a fiberglass one. Not fiberglass, carbon fibre is what I meant to say. Where fiberglass came from, I have no idea. So, but they were running a plastic fairing. So the point was made that they have certainly done some work behind the scenes on their aero and what they were running, albeit in plastic form, so as not to waste money on carbon fibre unnecessarily, was very much an Aprilia kind of aero ground effect type setup. So I think they are, in the Yamaha way, quietly getting on with stuff, whereas HRC is much more sort of high profile, isn't it? But yeah. So I'm a bit more, possibly a bit more hopeful, but if they can't extract a bit more power from the engine, then they will remain in trouble. And we'll find out in just a few weeks' time, won't we, when they start testing again in Malaysia. So all will be revealed. But, yep. yeah, I mean, the HRC Marcus thing was, a yeah, a big one, if not the biggest one of the year, really. I've, I've got one bigger, I think, than that. Uh, my number one is sprint races. Uh, through everything that I hated about it at the beginning – Oh my God, this is going to be championship points. This is ridiculous. This is that. This is this. I, you're doing the Formula One thing. On and on and on and on. Gosh, those are some great races. I will stand here admit, admittedly, eat crow. I was not a fan. I'm a fan now. It was really brilliant. And I'm going to tell you this straight. You can hate me. Benyaya would have won this title a long time ago if it wasn't for sprint races because Martin was winning races there and keeping. And Benyaya didn't seem to want to be playing in that arena. Now, yeah. You can say, well, hey, year one was always going to be crazy, weird, and wild in the sprint race, but what's year two going to bring? I don't know. I think it's going to bring the same thing, but you saw KTM's win there. You saw Honda win, Honda not win, but finish on podiums with Marquez. You had Bezeki winning. You, you, there was all kinds of weird. Alex Marquez, I think, won a sprint. I mean, there was yeah. all kinds of crazy things that happened in the sprint races that you just didn't think were going to happen, and it was brilliant to watch. It was gripping tele. It was gripping television. Okay, there's a problem though with that, and that is that 90 minutes of lead up that they're talking about going into a sprint race. I just want to pull my hair out. I wound up just fast forwarding it until I got to the race because it was just mind-numbingly boring television. And in um, I have an interview with someone who we talk about that. Like why why don't you do different things in that 90 minutes? You know show tech segments, do things with Simon Crayfar that he does on, you know, uh, on Instagram, do those kind of things inside of that period where you have this 90 minutes of, you know, Hey, you do a little subset snippet thing. 
you go talk to a couple of people, you come back, do the same thing again, whatever. Okay. But enough of, enough of me trying to fix it. That's a whole another interview. Um, but <laughs> that, is, that was where it was. I mean, you know, if Martin wasn't winning sprints, then Yaya would have been champion probably with one, maybe two races to go. But yeah. because he did have the sprints, he was able to be right there at the very end. And that is, I think what they wanted, they wanted the racing to go down and be a showdown. I think it allowed them to do other things. The, the, the paddock, the, the medals awarded on the main straightaway, the, the one special paddock they went to in Spain or wherever it was, it was in, the one in Qatar where they were in the back behind the paddock, I think, Rich. Is that where yeah, they those, did the guitar? Was it might have been Mizano or something? Mizano had an amazing spot could've, that could've they been, went to. I, I think the effect cool. of Dan Rosamundo, I mean, not just him, obviously there's a huge team, but he's the guy that's in charge of kind of pushing the championship forward in terms of viewership and engagement with fans and stuff. And so there were some positive signs and it did appear to be, although you have to be very careful and sceptical of data, of course, but it does appear that viewership is is going up. And the demographics around the viewership is kind of improving a bit as well. So, I mean, that's a long-term work in progress as well. And for every kind of fan uh, engagement down at the podium, sorry, me, there was, you know, a, a turgid kind of rider parade. So mm, some yeah, things worked, <laughs> some things didn't. Uh, I mean, Sam Lowe's in his interview that I did with him in Qatar made it very clear that one of the reasons, I mean, his time in Moto2 has kind of come to a natural end anyway. But he made the point that, having lost the morning warm-up, he's doing so few laps in a weekend that he'd rather go to World Superbike where he's got three races in a, plus all the practicing and all of the qualifying as well because he wants to ride a bike. So I lament the fact that Moto3 and Moto2 warm-up has disappeared and the fact that the MotoGP warm-up is, what, 10 or 15 minutes? Yeah, it's like not even very it's long. Like Blinking, you miss it. So I hope that they might alter some of that and go back yes i know there's costs involved in it but there are also some other things that we've highlighted in the past around safety and adapting to different conditions on the race day and stuff like that so good stuff and bad stuff i guess but overall i agree with you i think the sprints were in general terms pretty exciting there are a few uninteresting races but you'll always have that and yeah, there's this ongoing problem around, you know, more racing equals more crashes and more injuries. And there were obviously some people that were injured frequently and out for long periods of time. Whether that's entirely down to the fact that there, I, I don't know, it's hard to really quantify that a lot of the time, isn't it? But because that could happen in a main race just as easily as it could happen in a sprint race. And I don't think the sprint races were necessarily any more obviously dangerous in the first few laps than the main races were. I mean, once the green light comes on, they're all trying to win. Yes, they have a bit less time to do it in the sprint race, but fundamentally, I didn't see that it was kind of overtly dangerous. I think the bikes are dangerous. I don't think necessarily the race format is dangerous. So I think it was, I think that's a good number one, actually, Jim. Yeah, I think overall the sprints were tough on the teams and tough on the riders, certainly. And having spoken with Hervé and Lucho on the whole is 22 races about as much as this championship can manage. And they were both very much, yeah, we're at the limit. Yep. So I don't know what else they can change really to sort of push on forward, but we're in a sort of fairly happy place. I think provided things, you know, continue to grow in terms of fan engagement and stuff and that the viewership starts to go up again. Yep. All right. Do you want to do your wooden spoon and then we'll do rider of the year? 
Well, my wooden spoon from a MotoGP perspective was really the the HRC Marquez split. Mm. You know, the yeah. fact that it, it had come to that. You know, although as we've just said, and I won't go over it again, it's actually going to be positive for both parties in different ways and for different reasons. Okay. But you had something else you want. You we were talking about the officiating, and you were holding a thought. Yeah. Well, um, can I just say who my sort of my pick for MotoGP was in the sure. year? Go ahead. I'm going to go with Fabio Di Antonio, which again is a bit of a left, bit of a left field one, but simply because there was a rider that everybody thought had no business being in MotoGP, and then he wins a race at the end of the season and is kind of politically or from a sporting point of view has to be found a seat because he's kind of just suddenly emerged as a great, great MotoGP rider, and I think a lot of the credit for that must go to obviously it goes to Di but. It must go to Frankie Carcetti, his crew chief at Grassini, who will be working with Mark Marquez mm -hmm. this year. Yeah. Uh, who came on board with Digi this, you know, at the beginning of the 2023 season and just gradually together they worked through and got to the point where by the end of the season he was, and it wasn't a one off the Qatar race win. I mean, he'd been building up to that for several races. Um, and he was really, really good in the second half of the season and really put, Ducati and the sport in a position where they just couldn't really afford the PR disaster of him having to be out of a ride. So that took a lot of doing for him, his crew chief and the team. Again, Grassini, talk about punching above their weight. Yeah. They always do it, don't they? And Somehow, this year yeah. they might do it a bit more. <laughs> so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Um, it's a very left field choice, but again, I like it though. I really do. It's a, I little, like it. it's a little gem in the season. It and it was true. such a nice kind of happy story. Yeah, as well, yeah. as opposed to a guy that looks as if he was just going to be kicked out on his ass, you know, having not quite made the grade, you know, and you know, it just goes to show that that latent talent is always there. The trick is unlocking it. Yeah. Yep. 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 I went with Jorge Martin as my writer of the year. I thought Martin had changed how he did. He was always a qualifier, could just make one lap magic happen. And he still was, but, you know, Martin did win races. He did beat. You know, the, they did win the long races that he needed to win, things like that nature. I love that he was ballsy with the soft tire choice of Phillip Island. I mean, okay, the island had all the crazy weather, right? They ran the long race, the, the, the main race on that Saturday instead of the sprint. And then that was pure chaos at the end because it was one lap too long for a soft tire. I loved his spirit of like, screw it, put a soft on, let's go. I'm going to go win, whatever. I love that about Martin. And I mean, I'm sorry, any guy who's now dragging his shoulder – I gotta say, it's pretty cool. So, yeah, that it's probably the cool. it's probably the safe choice for me. But I just really thought Martin really kind of shook things up. He, I was prepared for a a very boring Benyaya route of the season with sprinkles of crazy Marquezism thrown in somewhere just for good measure. But the crazy Mark, the crazy Mark, the the crazy Mark Marquezisms came from a guy named Jorge Martin who made I think things interesting. So I'm going there. Fair enough. I just have, it's not a wooden spoon, really. It's just one other thing I just wanted to pick out as a slight negative in the year. Although, okay. again, there's a positive as well. I'm a bit peeved at the Dorna website and particularly the app oh. that you use on like your smart tellies because somehow they've done this magical trick of taking something that worked really, really well and making it worse. Yeah, much worse in actual fact, 
you know, even the search engines don't work. The other night, because, you know, through this off-season, well, I crave racing, so I always go back into the archive, because I've got the, um, you know, the MotoGP Dorna pass thing. And they always used to have a really brilliant archive of stuff. Now, it is still there, but if you want to go and look for a specific race, I wanted to watch uh, Acosta's Moto3 race in Qatar, where he came from the pit lane to the win. Okay, great. Can I get the search engine to find that race? No. And uh, the whole thing is just kind of on some sort of like a beta trial version, depending on what platform you run it on, whether it's a smart telly, which might differ between what sort of TV it is in terms of brand, whether you're on your tablet, on your phone. The whole thing is a bit of a an embarrassing mess, really, which yeah. doesn't really reflect terribly well on a company that's a media company. Mm. So that's a negative for Dorna. The positive for Dorna is okay. that... Can I having... stay with the negative first? Can I, yes, can I please, introduce the negative? Thank yeah, you. Yeah. So my complaint is, if I watch it on my computer, I can have different camera views all running simultaneously. That's the great way to watch it. However, I much prefer to watch the racing on my really big television. Why can't I take the app and have three or four cameras running? Because it would be great in my opinion, to be on my big screen TV, the bulk majority of the screen would be, say, the commentary feed. But hey, I want the helicopter in the upper left. The lower right is going to be Marquez's camera. Uh, I want to have Acosta's camera in the upper right. And I want Bender's camera in the lower left. I can't. I am only I only can have the one feed in the yeah. app. Whether it whether whether it's smart tele Roku Apple TV take your pick yeah. so okay that's I, my negative <laughs> I raised a sort of uh, a question through the email channels that you can have for the tech support on stuff and the response you always get back is well just plug your laptop into your TV but it's like well really there's an app you know that you can download on your smart TV but it doesn't do the stuff that your computer does so yeah. why is that that just doesn't seem very professional to me so. I'm hoping that's something that they will get on top of this season because let's be honest, it ain't a cheap service. No. It's, it's very good value for money in the sense of the amount I use it because I watch, as we've said before, many of the practice sessions, usually the qualifying sessions and all of the races. So, But for a more casual person, you know, I'm to stamp up $200 or 200 euros thick end of, although the price and policy seems to vary wildly as well between different people, which again is not great. Yeah. Uh, so work to be done to improve things. But on the flip side of that, I must, again, say a huge thank you to Dawn on behalf of Motopod for the access that they have given us and the fact that after a lot of begging, it must be said, and a, a few sort of terse words between us, they actually are starting, not just for Motopod, they're starting to acknowledge podcasting as a genuine form of media. I mean, it's 2023, for goodness sake, or it's 2024 now you would have thought that this would have been a bit more of a thing <laughs> in several years ago. But anyway, they gave us access free of charge. You know, although it costs a hell of a lot of money to go to Qatar, getting into the paddock was a press accreditation that they gave us. So, and hopefully that's something we can build upon with Dorna. They did it for us in World Superbike as well. So we've opened that door ajar. Now we want to push it open a bit further, but that's where we'll come to in future shows in terms of talking about what we want to try and achieve with the show and the engagement of the listeners and stuff. So great credit and thanks to Dorna on that side of things, but please, please sort out the app because <laughs> it is the pain in the ass. It really is. And it used to work brilliantly. You could go in, select what year you wanted. All the races from that year would come up each class, pick it. Now you have to search, put it in a search bar 
So you put in Qatar 2021 Moto3, it doesn't even bring the race up. Well, not on my TV, it doesn't. I've tried it several times. So, it's, yeah, terrible. Okay. I, I, I had to start the year off with a rant or two. Why not? So there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the show, guys. Hopefully you enjoyed a little look back, five things, some wooden spoons, a uh, little bit of news that we had there as well. Uh, well obviously, there's going to be uh, another interview that I have that will come out um, after this show probably. Rich has got some other interviews that's going to come out as well. And uh, we're going to look forward to having a pretty good, as Martin would say, best season ever of 2024. Remember, folks, to interact, email us, motopod at motopodcast.com. Questions, comments, concerns, anything like that, please do share it with us. We want to make the show as good as we possibly can. If you want to reach out to Richard myself directly, I am moto at moto RGV Instagram x threads and you are richard jowett at all same platforms there as well follow yep. us on x follow us on instagram uh we're really trying to boost our social media presence and many thanks to rich for doing a lot of that slug work to get that done and with that rich i will say ask everyone to ride safe cheerio see you next time